don't belong, really. I say don't belong. That doesn't sound right. Things that don't seem to work in congregational singing. Some songs just don't work. I, I don't see us. I don't see us rapping in congregational uh, gatherings. Although there's some excellent rap um, Christian music out there, I don't see us singing uh, certain songs that are just sort of very. Is interesting. I made an observation last week because I'm doing this. I hope you don't feel as though I'm looking at you or something, but I noticed something as I looked around church. The more a song is about... See, I don't think that church songs should be just a collective me experience where all of us are experiencing our own little thing with God. Okay? I just don't. I don't think that's the place for congregational singing. And it's sort of what do I mean by that? So if there were certain songs that were focused about the way I feel and just sort of what... And by sort of, I mean only in a sense where the main theme of the song is what God has done for me. I look around and I see a lot of hands raised and I see a lot of intensely emotional faces of people having a deep sort of emotional experience with the Lord. And yet, I looked around when we sing songs like Great is Thy Faithfulness. So we sing songs that are really focused on the attributes of God and, and the mightiness of God, the sovereignty of God, the love of God. You don't see that same sort of deep personal thing taking place. So just an observation I made last week when I saw that. And I thought to myself, that's, I guess, predictable uh, and interesting. Collectively, when the body comes together, we are there to focus on God first and foremost. That's where our focus should be. Because why? Why do I say that? Is this some sort of, am I a legalistic jerk? Occasionally, I think I might be, but... It's supposed to be a worship service, isn't it? Yeah. And why is that important? I mean, why is it... Because even the personal, the individual person could worship there. And by the way, I'm probably a little bit more... I probably come down a little bit more on the side of um, singing very little things that have anything to do with me, so to speak, and how I feel and all that kind of thing. And God's sort of... Uh, I, I haven't given a lot of thought to specific examples, which is probably good because I'd end up offending someone. So I'd rather offend you in just a very general sense than any of you be than any of you be particularly offended, right? But I, I just find that some songs like that just aren't ha- aren't. What's going to? How do we change? How do we grow as God's people collectively as a body? So it, it's it's. Uh, you know, I always go back to Jesus, I guess, saying, this is eternal life, that you know Him, and Jesus whom He has sent. So I think congregationally, songs about God should just be entirely about God, what He's like, what He does, what He thinks, um, and to some extent, how He feels. So we are singing about, involving our emotions, our bodies, our voices, with who God is. And again, maybe I go, and I only mean that congregationally, I, I just I do think there's room for um, I do think there's room for that kind of just deeply personal interaction with Christ, <clears throat> even with the Holy Spirit in certain songs that are more suited to that sort of singing in the car alone, or um, even some of the like the songs last week uh, that a brother and sister sang. Um, I think "Deeper Than the Stain Has Gone" is a great hymn. It's a great song. I think in some cases it might be a little hard to sing congregationally just because of the nature of the tone and tenor and the change in the different keys. And So, you know, and I'm not a music expert, but I just think there are some things that lend themselves better to congregational singing and we should be attentive to what those things are. And one of the ways that I find helpful in doing that is looking at some of the hymns that have just been around forever and that continue to be sung. I wonder if... Um, some of the songs that get written now, for example, will be still sung a hundred years from now if the church is still here. You know, I don't know. Um, I love music. I love what it does to us. Um, I love the way it moves us. I love the way God can communicate to us in ways that no other medium can. Uh, I can probably experience, and that's why I guess, as I mentioned last week, Martin Luther said, music next to the Word of God, music is the thing that scares the devil out of the room. You know. Uh, something to that effect. And we certainly know that he knew spiritual warfare. Any any comments on that in general before I get into these to these other hymns? Uh, voices of agreement or disagreement. I'm just afraid our old beautiful hymns that are so dark and only sound mm. will be lost with all this mm-hmm. continual praise simple uh-huh. songs. 
uh-huh. we do now that are being written. Mm-hmm. And, and it has happened over the centuries. If mm-hmm. you don't sing them, it's a lot. Yeah. Forever. In some ways, our hymns become confessionals. <laughs> you know what I mean? And in we do this in the body here, which is good. Once in a while, we'll cite certain things from either the Apostles' Creed or I don't know if we've quoted the Heidelberg in, in any way here before. And I'm not saying all those are fully appropriate in their fullness, you know. Um, you know, which, bap- which, which Baptist confession of faith is the best one? Which one is sort of overly... Um, um, oh, I don't know. Tends more towards... Or can be used towards legalism. I, <clears throat> but there is something about hymns that can almost be confessional about who God is. And I don't think the old hymns will ever completely go away. Um, I hope not either. Um, and at the same time, I don't want to deprive the church of new things that can come out. Like, for example, and I know I've used this example already in the past ten years, Behold Our God. I mean, that thing is, is, uh, that thing is theologically 24 karat gold, you know. Uh, it's all about God. It's all about sort of who He is, what He does. And I need reminders of that. We need it as a body we come together, Chrissy. Just to encourage Bob, there's quite a bit of um, hymn study in the homeschool, more mm. classical methods, or you know, quite a lot of Christian families who are bringing their children home to educate realize the doctrinal value mm. of the great hymns. And you can buy a whole beautiful curriculum yep. that are just based on singing hymns together yep. with simple <clears throat> piano accompaniment or whatever. And yep. there's quite a lot of people that are still studying them, you know, at least passing them on yep. to their children. Yep. And then there are certain songs, like the one I'm going to share now, that come from a person's personal experience that, uh, when he sings, sang it, I'm sure reminded him of his personal experience, but also a great truth about who God is. And that is, <clears throat> it is well with my soul. Yes, brother. So, some of the hymns, um, oh, I should say, some of the contemporary songs, I don't know why they can't be even classified as hymns in some ways, because there are some songs modernly written that are so accurate and so mm-hmm. biblical that if someone didn't know the difference between an old hymn and a contemporary, and you showed them uh-huh. side by side, I don't think they would know which one is which. My point is that I think that mm. there are still hymn writers writing mm, yes. today, yep. and just because the music is contemporary-like, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that those songs are useless. Right. They can be just as powerfully uh, theologically yeah, sure. valuable to us yep. as an old Isaac Watts song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for some reason I think that word hymn automatically equates to old music in the way that Q-tip relates to cotton swab. You know, it's like everyone relates. You say, i got to buy some Q-tips, but you might be just buying some generic cotton swab. Well, that's not a Q-tip, right? So I think we think of the word hymn in that way. Yes, it, Gary. You know, and then uh, The song of Mighty Fortress is that God that Martin Luther wrote. Yeah, we talked about last uh, week. Yes. Are you going to mention the tune that was behind it? I mean, he used a tune That's right. that was borrowed from mm-hmm. what they would sing in the taverns. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a contemporary music that he was borrowing mm-hmm. in in singing the song. No, I wasn't aware of that. I was thinking more of Amazing Grace. That wasn't set to music until sometime later. Did you have a hand, Barbara? No. Wait, okay, clean the glasses. <laughs> yeah, Beth. I just wish our praise words were up there with the actual music notes, so when you go how long you hold a note uh-huh. or if it goes up at the end or down at the end you, you could see it like a regular hymn well that's an interesting thing words across well that might be um, and, and a lot of people don't know music I mean I guess if I it, sort it, of it get an idea if a new one it's going up at the end of a verse yeah I only got acclimated to that a little bit just by singing while I was how seeing how long you hold a note I never knew I wouldn't if you asked me what the difference between a I don't know I don't even know what to say. Give me a couple of notes that are way off from one another, Mike. They're completely different notes. Uh, I'm, I'm so non-tone deaf, I can't even do that for you. <laughs> All right. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So there are some, But there are some sounds that are so different than other sounds, and I wouldn't know the difference by looking at sheet music, because I'm like you. I can't read sheet music. Well, yeah, you would see when a note went up or yep. went down. Yep. How long it holds. Yep. Yeah. So, so how would you define what's the difference between a hymn and a song? And That's what I'm getting why at. Why isn't why isn't something that was written yesterday? Uh-huh. Why hymn. is that a song and not a hymn? Yeah, that's that's, and I guess I'm asking that because Gary 
brought that up inadvertently or otherwise. And that's why I said we just automatically, when we say the word him, we automatically think, you know, pre-1900. Whereas anything written after that is a song. So it's a good question. How do you define a hymn? I don't know. Anyone want to take a shot at that? Mike? Um, Classically trained pianist? <laughs> I'd probably define a hymn as more of a, uh, a piece of music that is... Uh, <coughs> where instead of having a short verse, like chorus, mm-hmm. bridge structure, where you have that type of thing, a hymn would be more of... It's like a hymn book where you read down and mm-hmm. you have verse and then you go through the same melodic thing and you have another verse and you have mm-hmm. another verse and then in that context having theologically sound lyrics mm-hmm. that would be more of like the musical definition mm-hmm. of a hymn compared to a song which normally follows the verse chorus verse chorus bridge chorus um, structure so it's kind mm-hmm. of structural but then mm-hmm. like hymn just naturally comes with the combination <coughs> of being more theologically Mm-hmm. sound as well so a hymn uh, Behold Our God would be a hymn under that definition wouldn't it, 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 it would, or would it it would be technically categorized as a song it would but, uh, Interesting. under that definition but it's still theologically <coughs> sound so therefore it's worth thinking hmm. so I mean we, we use these words like theologically sound I'm not disagreeing yeah. with anything uh-huh. you're saying but what does that even mean because uh-huh. a song like Great Is Thy Faithfulness yep. right it's kind of like a list of descriptions yep. about about the nature of God, right? Yep. So if you just read that out, you you know, and kind of bulleted pointed that out, it's it's really all about just the nature and what God is like. Right. Well, there's other hymns like the one you're going to talk about, like yep. Amazing Grace, that is just as much how it's almost it's how we respond to the nature of God, mm-hmm. yep. and somehow that is viewed, I think, as less theologically sound mm-hmm. because in modern music and, and a lot of music that's written now it's become very you know that part has become overemphasized so that mm-hmm. it, it, it's like there's this overswing back to like it just has to be about the nature of God mm-hmm. there's beautiful songs that are written now that have this really nice balance of that mm-hmm. kind of thing yep. that would that that completely paint a beautiful picture both of the nature of God and our response to it there's a song mm-hmm. called Lord I Need You it's mm-hmm. a beautiful song of of who God is, of of our need for Him, and how He comes and He and He kind of lifts us up, mm-hmm. and, and it's uh, so I, I think even even that like mm-hmm. and this is where you can go crazy in yeah. like your definition of yeah. terms like yeah. Him yeah. and worship yeah. and theologically sound and, mm-hmm. and and you can kind of like <laughs> get lost, but I think I think sometimes you can overswing back like mm-hmm. you said to, to where it's just like it's all just about the description of who God is mm-hmm. there's definitely a place and, and it, as you dig more into the mm-hmm. older the older hymns like mm-hmm. you're going to do where accurate descriptions of who God is mm-hmm. meets our response to that yep so that's a good segue then into this song because I think this song represents a little bit of that balance because it certainly isn't really singing entirely about the attributes of God but just what that means what God's being sort of means to our human being and this is a pretty intense song that comes out of someone's pretty intense suffering right so you're familiar with this <clears throat> it is well with my soul and these are the words when peace like a river attendeth my way and you have to use the archaic English to sing it properly <laughs> attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll and I sort of underline words that I think are interesting that we won't speak that way anymore whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say it is well with my soul and then you know the chorus it is well with my soul it is well with my soul though Satan should buffet though trial should come let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul now he's using personal pronouns in here and this is where I think it gets potentially you know not in this song but it can get uh Again, I, I counted, the other day I was listening to a song and I counted how many pronouns the word I or me with it. There were 18 I or me pronouns and only three or four references to God. Okay? Now, on the surface, that, that sounds significant to me. Um, uh, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Again, singing a very personal pronoun. 
Should we change that in the body to our sin, O oh, the bliss? Christ shed His blood for our sin. And then, O oh, Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. I think it's interesting there. Not my faith, when the faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Now this thing is chock full of, even if it's not speaking directly to the attributes of God, like Mike was saying, it is clearly an immediate cause and effect relationship between the attribute of God and the effect that it has on the church. Okay? So, in a few examples, we can see how sort of biblical this is. So we could use the words doctrinally sound or we could use the words biblical. In any, in any, in any uh, case, I think sort of what Mike was scratching at is true. How does the reality of God, what, what is that cause and effect relationship between that and who we are as a people? So some scripture that I would refer to in this song, and I think he must have, and <clears throat> then we'll get into a little bit of her, uh, history about Horatio Spofford and the genesis of this song. Isaiah 26.3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. I was thinking of Paul this morning. I was reading something in Second Timothy preparing for our next round of, of class. And um, in it, you know, here's Paul in prison for the second time in Rome writing to Timothy. I mean, he's in prison in Rome writing to Timothy for the second time. He knows the end of his life is near. A lot of people have forsaken him. He doesn't have many people with him. This is after years and years of ministry. And he's in a difficult situation. Yet he's given some... It, it doesn't affect him. It hasn't affected his faith in one little bit. In a real sense, he will keep him in perfect peace whose mind has stayed upon him. God will keep those people in perfect peace whose mind has stayed upon them. Now that's... And now we have to also keep in mind the genre of this particular literature is poetic. Okay? And so we might say, okay, if I don't have per- perfect peace in my soul, does that mean that my mind's not stayed upon God? You see what I'm talking about? You see the danger sometimes of. So if, if this is if this is a um, because it was in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah, and that verse is part of that song. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Is anybody in here in perfect peace all the time? <laughs> It, well, it could be because our mind's not stayed on God. Couldn't it? Yeah. Plenty of times it may be because our mind is not stayed on God. Yep. Don't the trials and tribulations of this world cause us at times to lose our focus on God <coughs> where we should actually be putting more focus on God? Well, it goes back to what I, you know, the, the you know, Lord help my unbelief. You know, so much of what we struggle with is unbelief, you know, that's, that's, that's constantly being sort of dug up and scratched up and shown that it's, that it's still there, you know. Um, almost in some ways to a, a sickness that goes into remission for a while and then sort of shows up again, you know. Um, Job chapter 19, 25 and 26. And would someone turn... Uh, Christy, would you turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 32? I'll ask you to read that in a minute. Uh, Kelly, would you turn to Colossians 2.14? Angela, how about... um, I think Romans 8 is what I mean here, 22 to 25, which is okay if it comes after us. Anyone happen to get to Job yet? I didn't ask anyone. Job 19. Yeah, Job, uh, Job, Job nineteen twenty-five to twenty-six. If you, if anyone was there, you read it before I get. I know that my redeemer lives, and that at the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. This is an amazing, amazing thought of Job's, isn't it? I know that after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. So. Whatever is going on in Job's life, as horrible as it is, he still has this. Now, we know Job. Job's all over the place in this thing. He's, on the one hand, he seems like he's at peace. At the other hand, he's, he's in tumult, you know. No wouldn't be in his case. Romans eight thirty one to 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? 
It's an amazing, amazing verse. What a challenge that is to us. He who spared, and this is a question to us that the Scripture asks, He who spared not His own Son, how shall He not also with Him freely given all things? What's, what's Paul saying there? He's already given the greatest possible thing. You know, it, it's... Uh, I can't think of something to compare it to. I mean, he's, it, it, it's almost as if you've gone to the hospital they're concerned about your well-being if they just put you know, had a medical team operating on you and working on you for 10 hours and they saved you after a horrific accident, well, they're going to come in and take your temperature and give you pain meds and, and feed you after as well. You know, They've already done the greatest possible thing. They're not going to rescue you and, and commit all those hospital resources and doctoral expertise to getting you breathing and living and, and sustained again and stable. Okay, They're not going to give you a helicopter flight from the intersection of Podunk Road and Route 49 out to UMass and then get you there and just put you in a room and let you die. They've already done that. They've already committed the greatest amount of resource. How can they not? That's what the Scripture says to us in these times when we think that, oh no, He's already given His Son to you. How shall He not also with Jesus freely, freely give you all things? I was just thinking in that portion, it's just every need that you have Mm -hmm. will be supplied and there will be no need for anything else but Him. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. How are you connecting this now to him? So I'm trying to get the connection. Here. I'm connecting it to this hymn. Okay. To this particular hymn. I'm trying to look at the biblical basis for this particular hymn. And when you understand what Horatio Spofford went through, you'll say, well, that makes plenty of sense. Mm-hmm. And the words themselves are very much comport with what I was just sharing with you. Jo- uh, Romans 8, 22 to 25. For you know that the whole creation has been growing together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for our patience. Who puts hope in what they see? Hope, again, the biblical concept of hope. We're going to have to stop making the distinction in here between, <laughs> between visible sight. Right? I mean, Jesus had to correct that in the Pharisees. He says, you say you see. And since you say you see, well, you're in a lot of trouble. If you didn't see, that'd be one thing, right? So he's obviously talking about spiritual blindness. But I love your sense of humor on <laughs> Sometimes I make fun of my... I, I'm completely deaf in one ear. Sometimes I make fun of that as well. Sometimes my wife makes fun of it. So that's nice. I, th- I know who it was. I think it was... And part of the reference, but I think Rush Limbaugh said, deafness is the only handicap that a person can have that people are free to get annoyed with and express disgust with. You know what I mean? When, when, when people ask someone to repeat themselves, other people get so annoyed. Mm. It's like, ah. You know, Kim was here, I'd say this too. She gets like that. Ah. And I, you know, oh good, that's nice. Nice ridicule the handicap. You know? <laughs> but it was a great point that he made. It's like the only handicap that we have that is like publicly okay to get frustrated with. <laughs> anyway. Uh, thanks for taking me down that rabbit trail, brother. Uh, the blind leading the deaf over here. Um, okay, so, and then Colossians 2.14. Who has that? Uh... Yeah, sure, yep. Especially if it makes sense in your translation. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death mm. that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And Amen. this was part of his... Horatio Spofford mentioned this somewhere, things that were on his mind. He was a friend of D.L. Moody, if you know anything about the history of Spofford. Very successful Chicago attorney, <coughs> like Luther. All these people that were Luther, that were lawyers, they end up being great hymn writers, I guess. Um, his only son died in 1871, just before the Chicago Fire of 1871. Historically, the Chicago Fire was a, a fire in 1871 that destroyed literally thousands of buildings. Uh, 300 people, I think, died. Uh, Spofford had just made a very large investment in Chicago, and that was completely wiped out. So his son had just died before that. So he plans to sort of go to Europe with his family. Uh, I think he was actually going to go over. D.L. Moody was having a revival over there, or was preaching over there, was on 
doing some of his itinerant preaching there. So he decided to go over and see him after sort of what happened in Chicago, right? You can certainly see in your mind just going to get away from it all. He gets delayed, but his wife and his four daughters go over on the um, SS Vildoire, okay, basically a, called City Harbor, was the name of the ship. It was the largest passenger vessel in the world at that time. And it sunk in 12 minutes. And 226 passengers died. 61 passengers, 26 crew lived, but all four of his daughters died. His wife cabled from Wales, quote, saved alone, end quote. She wired that. So, so we get that wired, right? How different? We can't hear the voice. We don't know what's going on. We can't get any further details. We can't get assurance. Saved alone. Now, maybe they found out from cabling that the ship had sank already, okay? And uh, he basically had to be restrained from taking his own life at that moment. He had to be restrained from suicide. So he leaves to go to his wife and see her. And the captain of the ship stopped briefly along the way where the sinking took place and where he lost basically his four daughters. And, and that's where he penned when sorrows like sea billows roll. You know, just that constant thought of the waves coming against the ship and coming against the ship and coming against the ship. <coughs> And where the sorrows that he had, like sea billows, just continue to roll over him and roll over him, brother. If I'm not mistaken, when the captain pointed out to him the very spot where the ship had gone down, where his daughters perished, after hearing that, that's when he went into his room, mm. and that's when he penned the words, it is well with my Yeah, brother. that's where he, I think one of the first things that he thought of was these sorrows, sorrows like sea billows roll, and yes, that is when he wrote the song. He wrote it pretty quick. Um, so... <laughs> he was uh, he was a Presbyterian elder, certainly confident in the Scripture and in God. Wally, I just wanted to ask you: He wrote the the word. Did he pen the music too, or did that come later? Good question. I have no idea. Because uh, when you say that he did it so quickly, yeah, I doubt. I mean, I don't know if he was musically inclined or not. I, you know, I didn't read a whole lot of his history, but just enough to. Yeah. Oftentimes, if you look in the, if you find the book and find the song in the hymn book, it'll it'll indicate that. Right. It'll have yep. different, maybe different dates for music and for the lyrics. True. Yep. Good point. Uh, yeah, Tony. I'm, I'm thinking, even though it might have been obviously it wasn't there, but the difficulty in the in that phrase "it is well with my soul" mm-hmm. is a compilation, I think, of a couple of different things. One is in acceptance of, of what has happened, that God was in control of it. Mm-hmm. But the other thing I'm thinking is it goes a little bit beyond that in that the, the peace that you can have has nothing to do with the circumstances. Mm-hmm. In other words, you can have sorrow and, and mourn on the death of, in mm-hmm. this case, his four daughters, and yet still have peace mm-hmm. in acceptance of what... You know, yeah, what, you know what I'm getting at? Yeah, I think it's the like question is at that two point. Two things that kind of yeah. combine together that form something that is still faithful to God. I think it, I think it a lot depends upon what is sort of meant by peace. You know what I mean? <coughs> what, what, what was on his mind? Yeah, John. Yeah, I had a question. Maybe I'm backing up a little bit, but you were talking about the use of personal pronouns in him. Mm-hmm. Was that as a, a critique of it to say that we need to be cautious about uh, songs like this that speak to this man's personal experience. Yeah, my thought was in some of the songs that might get sung anywhere in the body of Christ, I was thinking, and I wish I remember what it was, but I counted, there are, I think I said, you know, 18 instances or I or me and three, three or four references to God. And I just thought, that's a flag to me. That makes me want to look a little bit deeper and pay a little more close attention to the song to see if it's appropriate for congregational singing or if it's more of a sort of private, personal, devotional thing. Right. So, if it, so w- w- are, you, are you thinking that if it is more of a private, personal devotion, perhaps it might not be? Yes. Yeah. Would, we, would we have to apply that to uh, the Davidic Psalms too? I mean, because so much of what David penned was personal and deep. Yeah, but I don't know that they were all sung congregationally. Some of them certainly were. Some of them you read right in the beginning, it's to be sung, you know, as, and it became well known that it was sung <coughs> Uh, it was sung at a particular time when they went up for a particular festival yeah. and that kind of thing. You so what Jesus sang when he was with the apostles, they, you know, they might have sung some psalms. But I think that there are some songs. And again, this is my own sense of... Um, I do see the hands. I'll get to them in a second. Uh, that 
our emphasis on who God is and then sort of it's the, that cause and effect of what it does to us. And I, I don't know, you may not have been here, I made the point that I was observing in church recently. I see when the songs that tend to reach more to us at a personal emotional level, that's when I see a lot of the hands raised and the eyes closed and the sort of deep emoting going on versus when we're singing songs that might be great as thy faithfulness or songs really focused on like the attributes of God. You don't see that. You don't see that. And I just... It's just an observation. I haven't fully processed. Uh, uh, yes, Michelle and Wally. You can follow, and I'll let you follow up. I was just going to say, but a congregation made up of individual believers mm-hmm. whose heartfelt mm-hmm. singing is to the Lord. So, the, so individually, it becomes a congregation. You know what I'm saying? It has to be individual. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought about that as well, that you know, we're all sort of having a particular individual experience. To me, unless we unless we properly understand God and who He is in truth, our individual experience is secondary. Because the, the, the experience somebody else might be having might not even be necessarily consistent with the truth of what the Scripture is teaching. It might even be an emotional response to some of the music, some of the, the, the ups and downs of the music, or some of the other words. And it may not necessarily be an emotional response to God Himself. I'm probably overthinking it, but I don't mind. If I am, <laughs> yeah, I guess that's what I want to hear from you. <laughs> I was just wondering if, um, when you look at, as, as John had said uh, about pronouns, hmm? when there are songs or hymns based focusing more on self hmm? than on God, hmm? we wouldn't really look to use many of them, not hmm? all of them, but many of them hmm? in our worship in our worship service mm-hmm. to God unless they're directed to God mm-hmm. and like, like that song that you mm-hmm. said it is well with my soul to mm-hmm. me I think it's a great song mm-hmm. to to even have in worship mm-hmm. but there are some songs that are just focused on self mm-hmm. and when I'm at home I would like to sing these songs mm-hmm. because I am by myself mm-hmm. yeah I, mean, I think that's, uh, and that's, you know, certainly, uh, I don't think if I was around, I don't think if I was a Levitical uh, priest of any kind, I don't think that I would have been appointed as like a worship leader, you know? But I'm thinking back what we have in the Old and the New Testament, and what, what we should, what it means to know God rightly, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to know God as eternal life. And I think of these things, and I think that the church body collectively, that's where we get that. That's where we get informed. We get, hopefully we get informed in our scripture time alone as well but when the body comes together there's something magnificent going on there because our eternity everything you read about eternity like in the revelation like the hereafter right life after life after death is uh, is communal it's always talking about you know we're communal it's not good that man should be alone so um <coughs> So, and I don't think it is a black and white area at all, and I hope I'm not communicating that because I understand what you're saying, Michelle. I also think, though, at that point, as I said, people could be emoting or sort of having their personal experience that may not even necessarily be in responding to the truth of who God is. It might just be something that... And I'm not saying God won't use that either. I just don't know that... John had a follow-up. Well, I'm, I'm, you mentioned that Horatius uh, Spafford, who yes. was a Presbyterian elder. Yes. Now, the Presbyterians in Scotland, mm-hmm. they would have no hymns sung at all. Mm-hmm. Horatius Bonar wrote over 600 hymns. They wouldn't have any of it. Mm-hmm. And he was a solid Scottish yeah, Presbyterian. Yeah, he was great. And um, even at his funeral, mm-hmm. he said, I want one of my hymns sung. Mm-hmm. A couple of his elders got up and walked out. Mm-hmm. So I don't Gotta know. love the church, man. <laughs> <laughs> So I mean that's a, I'm just yeah. a side comment, but uh, you know mm. there were there were the, this this thing with the you know tensions about music yeah, it goes way back yeah I'm and sure it does I think it's a more modern yeah. phenomenon but it it's way back yeah I'm sure it does but I hope at the very least what we're getting a hold of and again because my point is to I think my goal here is twofold first and foremost it's as a teacher is that what we do is a reflection of the glory of God and who He is. And again, sort of that cause and effect relationship between who God is and and what we are. Because we love because He first loved us. So our life is all about cause and effect. He's the sovereign. He's the omnipotent. He's completely sovereign (coughs) in our redemption and our salvation and our sanctification, etc. 
So that's my first goal. And then my second goal is to interact with it and learn and to sort of bounce what I'm seeing off of you people and, you know, sort of build one another up a little bit and by no means try to suggest that we're not doing music rightly here or whatever. I don't want to have people overly suspicious when we're singing every song, you know what I mean? Referring back to the Sunday school notes. And, oh, boy, you know. Gee, if Pat feels this way and I feel that way, am I wrong? No, more than likely you're not. Everyone's going to be looking over. I know. Yeah, right, exactly. Angela, did you have a comment? Um, yeah, no, I, I have to say that, like, in my past, I've done, I've gone through the season where I was counting, like, personal pronouns and Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, huh? and it can be a red flag by these take yeah. songs that you're talking about, like, Amazing Grace. Right. Start counting those personal pronouns. Right. Yet, that's a, that's a good song. Um, oh, gosh, what was my second point? There's something about that. Uh, we'll lose it. And that's why I say it's only sort of a red flag. It makes me want to pay more attention. It doesn't mean that it's off. It just means, okay, I think i got to look into that a little bit more deeply. Right. And it was that, yes, maybe we're not responding in a certain song to the personal attributes of God mm-hmm. and that truth, but we are responding to the truth of the gospel that has presented itself in our lives. Yep. So I think that depending upon the song, it can be a red flag, but I think that mm-hmm. just the counting and numbers of this versus that um, mm-hmm. I found it didn't work because I, I did it for a while. Yeah, yeah. I think in in correlation to that, it's the the focus. Obviously, I mean, if you look at the whole big picture mm-hmm. of what God has done, the reason for His creation of the planet and the universe and the everything has to do with mankind and His plan of redemption. And so, being that salvation is so personal. It makes sense that our praise to God would include His glory that is particularly in our lives. Mm-hmm. And yet, you can do that and still have the focus on God and not on self. So mm-hmm. you could have a song that's loaded with pronouns, and yet it's, the focus is on <coughs> God and His glory. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think the potential is there for that. I think that, again, we in our culture are a very, <coughs> very individualistic, very individual-oriented culture. You know, when you read so much of what Paul... One of the things that had to be squared away in years is that when people were interpreting Paul was not to interpret him in some sort of Hellenistic Greek sense, okay? Paul was often accused, has been accused by scholars of interpreting the Old Testament... Of, I'm sorry, of teaching in such a way as that he was sort of Hellenizing the, the, the gospel. In other words, making the gospel... complete, Speaking about the gospel in terms that would strictly be understood within the Hellenistic culture which he found. What do I mean by that? I talk about Hellenism anyway? What am I saying? Greek. Yeah, Greek, right? So, um, it w- which would have to do with Greek wisdom and Greek philosophy and all that. In other words, Paul was completely taking the message of Christ and having to repackage it. But it wasn't. I mean, it's been demonstrated over and again that Paul was steeped in the Old Testament which meant he was steeped very little in sort of individual thought. It was always about a people of God. It was always about a group. It was always about a called out people. Very little emphasis on the individual. That's the ongoing raging battle. And what's Paul talking about in Romans 9? Individual election or God's election of people in general? And that battle has been waging for years. And in Reformation, that uh, thought that becomes a bitter battle. You know what I mean? And so, I'm just, and I just bring that up to say that this, it's not surprising that this individual thing would come up as a potential problem in our music because it comes up as a potential problem in our interpretations of the Scripture and understanding of the Scripture. Yes, Paul talks a lot about the elect. He talks all about the church. He talks all about the church, all about the church. And yet he says, you know, um, I am crucified with Christ. Christ loved me and gave himself up for me. So, there is room sort of for both. And the question is, where does the eye fit in the picture of the... Eye doesn't come first. <laughs> All right? Um, eye doesn't come first. Eye comes before E except... That, no. How does that go? Eye, eye comes before E except after C? Okay. When, does, when, when do we talk about sort of the eye? When do we talk about what God's doing and redeeming? God's goal wasn't just to redeem Pat first and foremost. It was to redeem a people for himself. A people zealous for his name. A people zealous. And is, is not a group a collection of individuals? yes. But we've got to be careful to not make the individual more significant than the whole. Mm. I think when we're singing songs that have salvific overtones, mm-hmm. 
I think it is critical that we have that personal uh, adoration mm-hmm. of what Christ did for yeah. me. Mm-hmm. For instance, when the hymn writer says, Was it for crimes that I have done? He right. groaned upon the tree. Mm-hmm. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's that sense of, and in, in God intended it for me. Yep. He intended it for you, for yep. others as well. Yep. But it, it helps distinguish between the true worshippers who are there uh, in spirit rather than people yeah. who are there in body and yeah, don't understand. And for them to be able to sing collectively that Christ died for us, that's exactly what they think. They uh-huh. don't have a personal relationship mm-hmm. and don't understand the personal redemptive work that Christ accomplished for them. Yeah, and that's why I believe that the hymns, uh, songs and the music are for the believer first. The church is for the believer first and foremost. The church's function we come together is not primarily evangelical. It's not reaching the lost. That's secondary. Yep. Um, would you also say then, based on what Gary just said, that church, uh, these songs, where there's a lot of pronouns, are basically for identification, that we can identify with those verses, mm-hmm. uh, and we can then call upon the Lord's strength. Mm-hmm. And if they're motivational and identificational. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, because you have, you have Paul saying, Christ loved, him, loved me and gave himself up for me. You have Peter saying he he bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, being dead to sin, should live for righteousness. So they're probably teaching at two different levels about two different things there. You know what I mean? And so both do sort of coexist. And again, it, it's if nothing else, it clearly it, it's, it's not a it's not a black and white area. But um, maybe it would be helpful if we came up with some songs that were just shouldn't be sung, and maybe we can. I'm not going to dig through that because I don't. <laughs> I'll let someone else start that fire. You know what I mean? Um, but I just think that there are certain principles that should. There are principles we have in place for everything we do as a church. Why wouldn't there be very sound principles for music? There always have been in God's plan. There always have been. He didn't just let anyone sing, and He didn't just let anyone write music. He gifted and he equipped certain people. There are some people in this church that should never be allowed to go up front and sing. All right, I'm sure, I'm sure, and and it wouldn't be doing, it wouldn't be glorifying God in any way if it could. Just because that person is, just because that person is pouring out their heart to God, that's great, and I'm sure it gets mediated through Christ and sounds wonderful when it gets there. But in front of, but but up in front of the body, it might be like fingernails on a chalkboard. Yeah. Right, because not everyone should get up and sing in front of the whole body. Not everyone should get up and preach in front of the whole body. This isn't. People are gifted in different ways. God did it that way for a reason. That's, that's why it's partly not about what I want to do in the church. That, so that, right? Yeah. I wish my memory was good enough to find a place that I found in the Bible the previous week when it talks about um, the, the people who were seen were trained. Mm-hmm. And it was like a whole lot of yeah, it's in seconds. I think it's in. I think it's in. Uh, I think it's in. It's definitely. It does come up in the history books, but it also comes up in the Pentateuch. David appoints. David appoints certain people um, to carry out God's wishes for music. But if you go back to the Pentateuch, and it's probably in book. It's probably in Leviticus. That's probably where you're going to find a lot of information about music and singers and worship and how it's done and who should do it and that kind of thing. But certain people were equipped and gifted for it. Just as there were certain people that are equipped and given skilled and craftsmanship for putting together all of the items in the tabernacle. You know, somewhere it says God specifically gifted certain people to do this. Not everybody can. The first song was when they crossed the Red Sea. Uh-huh. And they sang praises to the, to the Lord Almighty uh-huh. who sank the uh, enemy and, yes. uh, and under the waters and they had the timbrels yeah. and they were dancing and they were rejoicing mm-hmm. over God's victory over the enemy. Mm. Amen. Yep. Which we should do. Colossians and Ephesians speaking to yourself in psalms hymns and, and hymns spiritual songs. And in spiritual songs. Yep. Absolutely. So those three ingredients seem to be what the Lord wants us to mm-hmm. utilize because mm-hmm. it says teaching and admonishing one another. Mm-hmm. So songs and hymns and the Psalms, of course, all should have some didactic merits for us. Mm-hmm. As we sing them, mm-hmm. they have teaching uh, lessons for us mm-hmm. and they're rich and they deepen our faith mm-hmm. and 
and help us to glorify God more as we understand Him. And I think that's what Mike Capera meant by doctrinally sound. I think he was, you know, sort of suggesting that it has to be, you know, that's the the whole point. Yeah, um, what edifies and what builds up and that kind of thing. Um, and it, it's it's. We seem to be pretty healthy here. I think I think in what we sing, but yeah. This is just a bit of a cultural observation, and I don't know if it fits in or not. But you know, in Haiti, when 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 the men were working and building together, it was very common to hear three or four men singing together as they worked. And in our culture, we've got earbuds and we've got yeah. our own thing, and we're kind of on our own, doing our own thing. Mm-hmm. My most sweet times coming back to America have been taking that piece and singing with my sister together in the kitchen when yeah. we when we work. Cool. It's not a part of our culture. Uh-huh. And to reclaim the we mm-hmm. and be courageous in the eye mm-hmm. to step out and say, but together we, mm-hmm. we can be this. Mm-hmm. I think so, that yeah. it's something that, um, I don't know, just a cultural observation about music, how it unites us, how it, we can identify with one another mm-hmm. when we're singing together. Yep. But it does take a bit of that humility to say that, I want to sing a hymn or a spiritual song together yep. with you. You know, it's just not really a part of yep. what we do. But I saw this guy, um, you know, the great comments and great thoughts that that, that that experience is a good observation, that individual thing. We've moved that way. Our technology has isolated us. I started reading a book, by the way. I can already recommend having just begun to read it. It's written by another one by Tony Renke, and it's called 12 Ways That the Smartphone is Changing Your Life. Oh, yeah, it's, it's not an attack on smartphones. It's an attack on us. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a challenge to human beings, you know. He's a, he's a tech junkie himself, but anyway, just put that out there. Um, I was thinking that uh, there's this... I saw this picture of a guy once that was an arm wrestling champ. Okay. This arm was four times bigger than the other arm. At least. It was massive. And the other arm, you know, he wasn't a wimp by any means, but this arm was massive. And he spent so much time on that, and it was obviously probably at least somewhat to the detriment of the rest of his body. He was way out of proportion. He was way out of proportion because he spent all his time sort of doing that one thing and specializing in that one thing so that the rest of the body didn't necessarily go along with that. It didn't fit anymore. It looked funny. It didn't look right. It probably wasn't healthy in the long run either. And I think that that's the kind of thing we have to think about with everything we do as a, as a body. You know what I mean? If we have an overemphasis, and I want to be careful saying this, preaching is so primary, but if all we did was submit to preaching and we didn't have any personal devotion time, we didn't have any personal fellowship time, we didn't have small groups, we didn't have a diversity of experience in the body, we wouldn't be healthy. Right? I mean, that's strictly biblical. So, pretty safe there. Um, I just want to mention a good example of this was, again, and I've mentioned him who died recently, was Nabil Qureshi, who, you know, talk about how it was December 15 of 2015, he started to have something going on in his stomach. By August 2016, he announced that he had, you know, the stage four. Uh, aggressive stomach cancer. His prognosis was terrible. Had about a four percent chance of making it beyond a year. Um, in September of 2016, about a month later, his wife had a miscarriage. Who knows? Maybe as a result of you know that diagnosis. In May, they found out. The following May, his treatment wasn't working well. In August of 2017, he had his complete stomach removed. He came home to Houston right after he had that done. He was in the hospital for seven weeks. He wasn't home three days and the hurricane hit. Because he was being tube fed and he needed power, they had to come rescue him because they were all flooded out and bring him back to the hospital. He goes home again. He's on palliative care. And he spoke last in his one of 42 blogs from his hospital bed. And he informed people. He said, you know, I'm, I'm in, things are looking pretty dire. Things are looking pretty grim. And he was struggling with what should my faith look like? Should I perform as if I'm, I'm right here when I'm not? He said, no, I don't think so. He said, God comes alongside us and He loves and gives us strength for today. And then he prayed and in his prayer he mentioned John 11 saying, no, I know if you want to, you can raise the dead. He mentioned Genesis 22. Um, He said in his prayer that, you know, God, you are able and I will rest in that as best as I can. If it's not your will to heal me, then I trust you and I love you anyway. We praise you, Lord. This was all part of his prayer. So I thought, you know, that's a really relevant example in, in our own life today of of, the, of that kind of so you know obviously his life was crazy 
I mean, what a what a last year of his life. I mean, up to that point, he was itinerant preacher around the world, reaching Muslims, Muslims coming to faith, bringing an apologetic to Muslims, working with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Uh, just a brilliant young man. Already had a medical degree that he had gotten when he was younger. He was 34 at this point, so he hadn't gotten a medical degree in his 20s. He was working on his uh, another master's degree at Oxford University at the time. I already had one master's degree from apologetics in Biola, which is where I met him, and <clears throat> when we were in class together. So, great example of what can happen and how it doesn't define us, and that's hard to grasp because if I came home today and found out my four kids were dead, or that they were all driving up to Maine with Kim or whatever and she got to me and she called me up she said we got in a terrible accident I'm the only one that's alive oh man you know I don't know if I could head on up to Maine and stop at the very spot where they got in the accident still see debris on the road or whatever and sit there and decide to pen a song about the goodness of God or you know the peace the peace of I don't know I don't have to know because it hasn't happened God has no intention of my knowing that right now that's the things I'm not supposed to peer into. I'm not supposed to wonder if I'll be okay. I'm supposed to wonder today, where am I in Christ? Right? And where is, what, what's he doing? Uh, I've got two other songs I want to go over. Uh, we can pick up next week. The Deep, Deep Love of Jesus and Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. It's just a couple of examples. And then what we're going to do is I want to have a little study after now, we're coming up on November 4th, and I'm preaching that day, so I usually don't teach the same day I preach. When are you going to be in Jamaica? What are the dates? The 4th. So you won't be here? I'm in the 5th, uh, that Sunday. Just that Sunday, we, I won't be here. I'm sorry, the 5th is, the fifth. that's right, you guys won't be here that 5th. That's the day that I'm preaching. Oh, so, no. Right, so I don't know who who's left behind that might be able to teach that day. Um, are you still going to be in the music theme? I don't think so. I think we'll wrap that up next week. And then I want to have a little study on sort of uh, the Bible in the newspaper. <laughs> you know, uh, I have a good recommendation, Brother Barry. If he's going to be around. Maybe I can talk to you on the teaching on uh, the morning of Sunday, November fifth. If you, you you just kind of get semi volunteered for that, but we can talk on a one on one basis. We don't have to put you necessarily on the spot uh, and, and ask you if you can. I mean, it's a great idea because we all love to hear you teach. But if you're available for that. Um, okay <coughs> excuse me I think we can close Father thank you for our time this morning and for the very helpful discussion about something that's very important to you I know it is is music because we all enjoy music so much and because we're created in your image and we know that um, we know that uh, cherubim and seraphim um, raise a chorus in heaven constantly and there's probably quite a musical ruckus in, in the next sort of phase in life beyond uh, here. So we thank you for that. Help us in helping us to have a taste of that now. And ask that, and, and, and thankful that we could have a discussion about it in the way that we do, where people seem very interested in bringing points for others to talk about and think about versus just sort of defending a position. What a refreshing thing that is today. The move of the Spirit. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we thank you. We praise you and we ask for you to teach us now upstairs and reach us with the Gospel. Amen. Preach, teach, live the Gospel, right?